Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Eric. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, I would love to do that at some point. Uh, I'm a pastor in training here. Uh, if you want to come say hello after the gathering, uh, that'd be great. Also, there are so many people here. Any college students just get back into town? Nice. That's great. There were more hands than voices, just for context. Everyone, I'm sure, was just as excited. Uh, welcome back. If you're just now getting back, and uh, welcome back to everyone else who has been, been coming around uh, over, over this winter break that UT has had. Uh, so if you are just joining us, actually before that, uh, I want to I give you guys a little story. So when I was in college, uh, I lived in a three-bedroom house with six guys. Yeah, it was something. So it was like whatever you are picturing when you're like, mm, that is clean and organized. That is exactly how it looked. Uh, not the clean and organized. Whatever you're picturing, that's how it looked. Uh, so it came complete with like an Art Deco style tower of boxes that we were one day going to recycle, but then it just turned into how tall can we make it. Uh, we had like eight couches in the living room. It was, a, it was quite the setup. Uh, we had a lot of great times, a lot of great times in the house, came up with all kinds of weird traditions and, and the like, uh, more than I have time to share and, and definitely more than you would probably care to hear. But uh, there was one relatively short-lived uh, practice that we tried to do. Uh, it, it, was, it was very brief. So we talked as a house and we felt like it was something that we had heard at church and something that we felt like we saw in our lives. We felt like selfishness and materialism and, and self-centeredness was just far too prevalent in our lives. And in response, we made a rule at our house. We decided that there would be a price to pay anytime someone used the word mine. Like, this is mine penalty. Like, you couldn't do that because, like, you're too selfish. Nothing is yours. Um, so it was like we were trying to teach toddlers how to share, right? But, like, we were all the 20-year-old toddlers, uh, we were also broke uh, and like stereotypical college guys at the time. So the penalty was 10 push-ups. That was what we had to do. Uh, you said anything you said, it's mine. It was very aggressively pointed out. And then you owed the house 10 push-ups. Everybody would, you know, circle up, do the whole thing. Uh, the goal was to help us become more selfless, less materialistic, and hopefully totally jacked along the way, right? <laughs> Uh, that was the goal. Uh, none of those things happened, uh, especially since this lasted like a week, maybe. Uh, but we tried, right? Sort of. And, and that's a bit of a ridiculous story, I know. But, but it is true, for the record. Uh, and underneath kind of the absurdity of all of that, there's, uh, I think in us, there was at least a little bit of a desire to think at least a little more intentionally outside of ourselves. But I think one of the biggest reasons that this didn't work, the system that we tried to implement, was that we weren't really all that concerned 
with much that existed outside of our house. We weren't, we weren't truly concerned with what our end goal or what we said it was. We thought it would be a fun thing to try. We, we, thought, uh, we thought it would be a good time. We, we, would, we would have fun with it. But in, in reality, there wasn't really an understanding of what we were supposed to be concerned about. So there wasn't really a desire to change much about our own lives to reach the end goal of being more selfless or being less self-centered. And I think if we're really honest, a lot of elements of our society today uh, are really similar. A lot of us who operate in our society today are really similar. So we're, we're big fans of talking about change a lot of the time, right? We're, we like talking about societal change or administrative change, legis legislative change. We love to see change happen, especially when it aligns with, with our own agendas and somebody else does all the work. We love seeing that. That's, uh, that's great. But a lot of us don't get all that excited about the effort and sacrifice needed on a personal level for change, right? Because, I mean, why would it really matter on an individual level, right? Surely my day-to-day -day life is not really going to make or break an entire wave of change. I'm not a big enough deal for my change to matter or my personal change to impact the grand scheme of things or the big picture change that we want to see happen. And I don't think that's, a, that's not malicious, that's not a conscious choice a lot of the time. I think that's just the society that we live in, and that's the society I live in as well. So over the past few weeks, we have talked a little bit about what it looks like for us to change over time to look more and more like Jesus. That's what this whole formation series is about. We've been talking specifically about uh, the practice of fasting. So we talked about some of the individual implications, some of the, some of the personal implications of fasting and what it does to us or in us over time. And we're, we're wrapping up our series today. This is the last week of our formation series. And, and uh, we're going to talk about something that, that we haven't really discussed yet. And, and that's how to make fasting uh, matter for things outside of ourselves. So how fasting actually can and, and should change us in ways that extend beyond ourselves. So I would love to pray for us real quick, uh, and then we can hop in. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time today. Thank you that we get to uh, study your word and hear from you. I just pray that your spirit is, is active and moving here today, uh, that we would be able to hear what it is you have to say, that you would give us ears to hear, uh, and that we would understand the ways that we can uh, continue to, to grow and, and shape and mold our lives to look more and more like you every day through the power of your spirit. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so I've mentioned this a couple times uh, up here on Sundays, but uh, I grew up overseas. I grew up in Kathmandu, Nepal in South Asia. So for those who are not aware, Nepal is, is a pretty impoverished nation. So depending on which reports you look at, uh, the average household income in Nepal is between $800 to $1,300 a year, uh, so, or 2 to $4 a day, basically. Not per person, per household for the year. Uh, that's the, the average income. So for the majority of my, my youth, I lived there until I was 16, I was acutely aware of, of the reality of extreme poverty. I did not have to go far or I did not have to think that hard to imagine what life would be like for someone who lived on the cost of less than one happy meal a day. I didn't have to think that hard because it was just all around. But as of last year, or maybe the year before, I didn't do the math uh, that thoroughly, but I have now lived in America longer than I lived in Nepal. So I have, I have like 
made that transition. And to be completely honest with you, uh, after I moved to America, the, the painful realities of extreme poverty was honestly one of the first things to leave my mind. It really was. Uh, and the longer I've lived here, I think the easier it has been for, for me to not only forget, but uh, to ignore, honestly, the, the plight of the impoverished in our world, because it's not right in front of me as, as much or as often. And I think at least one of the reasons for that is because we live in a country that, historically speaking, is one of the wealthiest countries that has ever existed, right? Certainly not even, I'm not saying anywhere close to everyone in America lives a wealthy lifestyle. That is, that would be outlandish to say. But we live in a society that, that does everything possible to make sure that you think about you and you think about your life and your success and your thriving and your your existence above everything else first. And that is not a you accusation, that is a you collective we. I exist in that space as well. And I, uh, I think it's interesting uh, in, the, in the internet age that we live in, and one positive impact of that is, is that it's easier and easier for us to get an immediate look at what is actually happening around the world. We can see a picture of it. Uh, and, and we can see that poverty exists. We can see that social injustice exists. But I think a lot of us, uh, not, not of our own volition, but I think a lot of us don't actually know how to care about those things. And I don't, I don't just mean care uh, in that it bothers us that some people live in poverty. I'm not saying that we should, we should think about it uh, when something prompts us to and we, and we feel some pity for that situation. I mean care in the way that the, the God of the Bible cares by having our hearts break over that reality, to feel compelled to do something about it. Right? And, and God cares about it. Uh, a huge emphasis of God's economic system, if you have read through the Old Testament, uh, for his people consists of caring for the poor. It's not just in, in, in some of his commands. It is also in the economic system that he set up. In Deuteronomy 15, for example, God commands his people to cancel all personal debts every seven years. No questions asked. That's just what you do. It's a system that is concerned for the poor. It says if you are in debt and you can't get out, every seven years it's gone. You start over. In fact, there are over 2,000 references throughout scripture that talk about the poor or the impoverished. And the emphasis is not just on, on caring for the poor, right? It's also on, on the other side. Uh, so Proverbs 14.31 says, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for his maker. So that's not just towards the poor, that's towards God himself. And it's not just an Old Testament thing either. I, I, and Jesus, actually, in Matthew 25, he, he's telling people, uh, he, he basically says, um, people make it to eternal reward or eternal punishment, at least in part, not entirely, but in part, by how well they loved and cared for the under-resourced people in their lives. Right? God doesn't just want to do nice things for the poor. God is deeply concerned for the poor. So that is not trying to push any kind of agenda or make any political statements. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about this topic. But like I said, in our society, sometimes I, I don't think we create much space to consider poverty for all that long. We don't, we don't like thinking about those things. We'd much rather just think about 
uh, our own resources, our own struggles, our own lives, and not think about the bigger picture. I've got enough going on. And, and sometimes, I, I, I would argue often, uh, when we do think about poverty, a lot of times it's still rooted in thinking about ourselves. At least it is for me, where it has been historically. So let me show you what I mean. When you were a kid, uh, did you ever have an adult say something along the lines of, you know, there are kids starving in, insert country of choice, right? And that was the reason that you should finish your food. That was the reason you shouldn't be picky, right? A, a lot of times we think of it in a way that uh, we should only think about poverty insofar as it makes us more thankful for what we have, not actually to do something about that reality. Also, there are people in Knoxville who are starving. You don't have to go across the world. You can just look across the street, right? But we are so deeply ingrained with a sense of individualism and insular thinking, uh, and that's just the society that we live in. That is, that is the air that we breathe here. And interestingly, it's actually a really similar problem or a really similar situation to what the Israelites were feeling when Isaiah brought God's word to them in Isaiah 58. So go ahead and turn there if you aren't already there. Um, I am going to give you a little context, a little setup for this passage while you're turning there if you are not already there. So Isaiah is having a conversation with God's people, and he's talking to them about fasting. Uh, so they come to him. They come, they come to Isaiah, and they're basically like, hey, this whole fasting thing that we've been doing doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to work. Uh, we're not really seeing a whole lot of payoff, right? They're going through the motions. They're checking the box of fasting, and they're essentially annoyed because they feel like God doesn't seem to be showering them with the favor they think they deserve in response to their efforts. And so maybe, maybe during this series, uh, as we've been fasting, you, you might have felt some of those same things. You may, have, you may be thinking, I'm doing that whole fasting thing. Like, I gave it a shot. doesn't seem like it's having much of an impact. I don't feel much different. My life circumstances haven't changed all that much, except for I had to have a conversation with my coworker the next day and apologize for being grumpy, right? I don't feel closer to God. And, and some of that, just as a disclaimer, we said this at the beginning of the series, some of that could be that it takes time. It takes time for some of those things to happen. It takes, it takes the practice uh, to be an ongoing thing. But some of it could also be for similar reasons to the Israelites in this passage. So Isaiah comes with some input directly from God himself. He's a prophet speaking on behalf of God about their fasting and the issues with it. So take a look with me in Isaiah 58. We're going to start in verse 3, and we're going to unpack a little bit as we go. Isaiah 58, verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you, that's God, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Let me just say, as an aside, uh, if you feel like you're having a hard time with fasting, or maybe you get easily frustrated or hangry, whatever that looks like for you. Uh, if you're not exploiting all your workers and uh, punching people as a result, you're doing pretty well compared to the Israelites, honestly. So way to go. You're doing something right, uh, at least comparatively. Uh, all right, sorry, we'll keep reading. 
You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? So there's a lot, a lot going on. Um, so like we talked about earlier in this series, the, the assumption here is that fasting is taking place. Right? There's no instruction here that says you should be fasting. It doesn't say whether or not God's people should or shouldn't be fasting, but it, sh- it talks about how they are fasting. So the assumption is that fasting is happening. In fact, uh, the people that Isaiah is talking to in this passage are very familiar with fasting, right? They, they are regularly participating in it. That's part of their complaint, right, is they've been doing this and they don't feel like it's working. But they had become dangerously inward-focused in their practice, Right? Isaiah is rebuking God's people because they had lost sight of God's heart in their, in their practice, in their fasting. They had taken the practice of fasting, they had taken the action, but they had made it into something that completely missed the point. So think, think about it like this with me. Think about a, there's, a, there's a kid who's playing with uh, another kid their age. They're having a great time, right? Maybe, maybe it's your kid. Uh, maybe it's your niece or your nephew or maybe a moment of quiet reflection on your youth. Uh, but there's a kid in this story. And they get frustrated with their friend, right? So they just give him a good shove, right, straight to the ground. And then the friend decides to cheat in this disagreement and they start crying. Right? So parents come, they try to sort things out, and they say, hey, tell them you're sorry. And you go, sorry. Well, not exactly what they meant. Right? Technically, uh, technically they did the thing. Right? In the strictest form of the definition, they did complete the task. But it totally missed the point. Right? It's not about the word itself. It's not about just saying the words sorry. It's about something deeper. It's about a change in attitude, a change in actions, an opportunity to reflect on the realities of the situation that they found themselves in, to experience remorse and to choose to do something in response. And and it's really similar to the situation that the Israelites were in and the way they approached fasting. fasting. They were doing it, but not how God intended Right, sure, the action was there, but they missed the point. They viewed it, as it says in Isaiah, only as a day to humble themselves. It was completely inward focused. It was just a day to sulk around, be hangry. It was only about themselves, only about their personal, private relationship with God and their personal spiritual lives and spiritual experiences. No impact on their society or how they treated other people. Which means, in God's eyes, according to this passage, it's completely missing the point. Now, you may be thinking, didn't we just spend a couple weeks talking about fasting and self-control and our own bodies? Feel personal. (laughs) And you would be correct. That That is true. We did do that. 
but we've been talking about different elements of one practice, right? Different facets of the same thing. So there, while there are individual and personal things associated with fasting on the larger scale and some personal aspects of what we're talking about today, biblically there should also be an external impact of our internal efforts. It has to start with you as an individual. It does, but it can't stop there. If it stops with you, it misses the point. Right? The hope is that all the different facets and aspects of fasting that we've been talking about are happening in conjunction with each other. Right? It's not like today is a self-control fast and tomorrow is a body image fast and then next week is going to be a something else fast. It's fasting as a whole. As we deprive our bodies through fasting, we're practicing focusing more on God. Right? We're practicing self-control. We're practicing not being so self-focused. And through that, we can actually redirect and shift our focus to others. All right, I heard Scott McKnight, he's a New Testament scholar, he framed fasting this way, and I found it super helpful. He said, fasting that does not lead to the consideration of others misses the point. It leads to the consideration of others. So it's not only the consideration of others, it's also the self-control aspects we talked about. It's also your relationship with Jesus, and it leads to the consideration of others. So in light of that, I want to spend the rest of our time today talking real quick about three things that I think fasting can do in and through us as followers of Jesus as it relates to our interactions with others. So first, I think fasting helps us relate to God's heart. Fasting helps us relate to God's heart. Fasting helps us enter into a mindset where we can start to understand God more tangibly and understand the things that he cares about. We, we get to start feeling and experiencing things that help us relate more closely to how God feels about injustices in our world. It's this really interesting phenomenon. And choosing to go without food, if you have done this, uh, choosing to go without food for an extended period of time is not a pleasant experience. It is not enjoyable. And, and honestly, that is part of the point. So when, when we feel the discomfort and, and the pain that is associated with depriving ourselves of these things, it can be a means by which we start to grow in our understanding of how God feels in response to things in our world not being as they should be. Right? Look back at verse 6 in the passage. It says, is not this the kind of fasting that who? I have chosen. I. This is Isaiah speaking God's words. So this is God saying, this is the kind of fast that God has chosen. And what is it meant to accomplish? What is God's fast meant to accomplish? Just keep reading. It says, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. So fasting, like other spiritual practices, uh, they, it helps shape and change us over time. It causes us to intentionally think and then act differently over time. It moves us more and more gradually over time in the direction of caring about things that God cares about. It moves us in that direction. So earlier we talked about God's heart for the oppressed, for the poor, victims of injustice, 
We mentioned a passage in Proverbs and Matthew, but there, there's hundreds upon hundreds of references in Scripture. God is concerned for the poor and the oppressed. He wants justice for them. And, and the passage we just read from Isaiah tells us that fasting is one way that we can meditate on that reality and meditate on God's heart and over time be moved more and more in that direction. And this concept is true uh, for, for so many areas of life as well, right? Not just our spiritual lives. We, we grow and change and are shaped over time by the things that we care about. Uh, let me give you an example from my life. It's a little ridiculous, but that's fine. So I was uh, a vegetarian for many years, uh, and I was one of the ones that, like, made sure you knew. I was that kind. Uh, <laughs> Uh, not vegan, because I have a thriving relationship with dairy, and I would never do that. Uh, but I was a big fan of trying to find, like, delicious vegetarian recipes. That is not an oxymoron. Uh, creative ways to use all kinds of, of different, uh, like, legumes and vegetables and soy-based meat replacements. I, I promise this is going to take a turn. I enjoyed being creative, though, in the ways that I was trying to, to cook because I experienced the process. And I, I, I enjoyed learning and experimenting with new things. And, and as a result, uh, so I, I became a vegetarian as soon as I started cooking food for myself in life. And so uh, I couldn't tell you the first thing about me at the time, right? When is the steak done? Uh, I don't know. When it's mooing, I guess. It's... Uh, how would you like your burger? Black bean. That's what I would like. Uh, what do you season different meats with? How long do you cook them? I don't know because I don't care. <laughs> don't ask me. So fast forward a few years. I was approaching 30, and so I, hadn't, I needed to adopt a personality. Uh, so, <laughs> so I bought a smoker, uh, a grill for smoking meat and other things, not just meat. Uh, but I bought a smoker and things started to change, right? So I started eating meat again, which also meant that I had to start cooking meat. So uh, I started really simple. I was like, I don't really know what to do, so I'm going to find like a chicken marinade recipe. That'll be good. Found one I liked, stuck with it. Haven't changed it a bit since I found one online that I liked. It's great, but I am not deviating at all. Uh, but I, I enjoyed it, so then I started digging in a little deeper. I started researching a little bit more. I gave pork a chance, right, a pork tenderloin. It was so easy. All the recipes that I found was like, just put it on there, leave it, and you're done. And it was delicious. It was so easy and so good. Uh, so I took the next step, right? So I started getting more and more into it. I started smoking, like, pork shoulder and, and doing, like, pulled pork barbecue, trying different combinations, different methods of seasoning and temperatures, experimented until I found a system that I liked. Right? I was learning more and more because it was quickly becoming a staple in my meal rotation, was having some kind of meat in there. So, and I've gotten so into it at this point, I'm not crazy, but uh, like I've got like a multi-step system like zeroed in to the minute on some different things. I'm fully convinced that I make the best wings in Knoxville. <laughs> just ask around. People know. I'm just saying. And ribs. Oh, they're so good. Uh, but it's like a science. I've got it, I've got it nailed down. And maybe not the most helpful illustration for a fasting sermon, but <laughs> that's okay. No one's eating in here, whether you're fasting or not. Uh, but, but here's my point with all of that. Because it was something that I was participating in 
repeatedly over time, I started to care more and more about the details and the process. I started to care more and more about what I was doing. I went from having just a cursory understanding of, like, I know it works somehow, to getting to the point where I care enough to plan my entire day around it sometimes. Right? Over time, the things that we pursue, the things that we engage in, they, they shape us, they change us. They change the things that we care about. So when we engage in spiritual practices, like fasting, it helps us become more and more like Jesus in the process. Right? We talked earlier in the series about how fasting helps us grow in self-control. I mentioned that. And, and the practice of denying ourselves. And when we grow in denying ourselves and we grow in self-control, that gives us the opportunity to spend intentional time meditating on and looking towards Jesus. We begin to look more like him because we, we spend more time diving into what it means to be like him, what it looks like for our lives to look like his. And when we become more and more like Jesus, we also become troubled by the things that trouble him. Right? The things that break his heart become the things that break our hearts. The things that he wants to see changed in our world become the things that we want to see changed in our world. And when we understand more and more about those things, we can then act on those things through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we act on the desires of God's heart, right? Because following Jesus is not just mental. It's not just emotional. It's our whole person, which also means that it is physical. So we can physically respond through fasting. That is a physical response. And as his followers, we can take up his yoke of action and take up his work in the world, right? which points us directly to the, to the next element of fasting, and it's that fasting is a means to pursue solidarity with the poor. Fasting is a means to pursue solidarity. So solidarity, uh, just for our definition today, it's the pursuit of unity with another person or another group by voluntarily entering into a part of their experience. That's what solidarity is. So when we choose to fast, we are voluntarily going without and in doing so, we can join in solidarity with those who have to live without. Right? Like I said earlier, it is, it is so easy, it's too easy to end up in a place where we can just tune out the realities of poverty and hunger and injustice in our world if it is not something that is regularly a part of our lives or regularly in front of us. And the practice of fasting is an incredibly tangible way to willfully enter that space. Fasting helps us show solidarity with the poor. Now, you, you may hear me say that and think, uh, that seems pretty silly, <laughs> honestly. How on earth does me not eating when I have the ability to solve anything? Right? Just because I leave my food in the fridge, that doesn't mean someone across town gets to eat today. Someone on the other side of the world doesn't suddenly have food. My, my pantry doesn't turn into a teleporter when I fast, right? 
It kind of feels like the kids are starving in other countries argument a little bit. But here's the reality, right? Solidarity can be a very powerful thing, even if it doesn't immediately solve what we are talking about. And, and let me show you that we, we do believe this is true as a society, right? So has anybody ever seen the videos that, that sometimes go around of somebody who is going through and experiencing chemotherapy and, and they're shaving their heads preemptively? And then there's another person who's a part of their lives who is not currently experiencing chemo and they choose to shave their head alongside them. There's a video recently making the rounds of, of somebody's uh, hairdresser doing this while their client was in the chair. Hit me right in the feels, right? Maybe you've even been a part of a situation like that. Uh, let, let me ask you something. Does, does the healthy person choosing to shave their head cure cancer? Does shaving your head keep a friend or family member from having to go through the physical brutality of chemotherapy? It, it, it doesn't. If you are experiencing that, does your friends or your family members, do they have to shave their head to show you that they care? Does it make chemo easier? No. The answer to all those things is no. In the strictest sense, it doesn't solve anything about the cancer itself. But at the same time, is it meaningful? Is it meaningful when a friend does that in solidarity? Absolutely. Tell me the last time you saw a video like that and, and didn't feel a tug on your heartstrings or tearing up. Right? This is a, a small opportunity, but it is an opportunity to put yourself through something that helps you at least just catch a glimpse of what someone else is going through. That's solidarity. It puts you in a position where you willfully sit in and experience some small aspect, just a small aspect of someone else's struggle. And the same thing goes for fasting and identifying with the poor and the hungry. But it shouldn't only be a gesture of solidarity, right? When, when we choose to go without repeatedly over time, not only is it an opportunity for solidarity, it's an opportunity to, to not just spend time thinking about or trying to relate to those who don't have enough. It's a consistent reminder to pursue justice for those people. It is. And so here's, here's our last point before we wrap up today. Fasting is a means to pursue justice. Fasting is a means to pursue justice. See, fasting in and of itself doesn't provide relief for others unless we go a step further, right? One way that we can do that is by directing what we are depriving ourselves of to someone else, right? Because it doesn't just stop with thinking about people in need. Look back at Isaiah, the last thing that God says about the purpose of his fasting. He says, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe them not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Right? A lot of people will look at our world sometimes and think like, God, why haven't you done something about all these injustices that are going on? And sometimes, uh, sometimes it's, it's the reality of the brokenness that we live in and we don't have an answer, but sometimes his answer is something along the lines of like, I did make you. <laughs> right? We have the opportunity to participate in doing something. 
about it. So if we go in prayer through fasting or through other means, if we go in prayer to a God who wants to see justice, we should also be willing to spend our time and energy working for the same justice. If we're going to ask him to make justice happen, we should also be willing to participate in that. Right, we, we talk about this in different contexts. We are God's primary means of pursuing justice in our world a lot of the time. Now, Scripture does tell us justice belongs to the Lord. That is true. We are not judge and jury and over everything. But we are vessels for God's love and for pursuing justice for others here on earth. Right, so where, where does fasting come in to that? Well, everything that we talked about up until this point throughout the series. But, but also, I think, the, so the first, I guess the most obvious would be to pray, right? To spend time praying, faithfully and continually praying for those who are in need. But it doesn't stop there, right? So maybe, maybe during your time of fasting, when you would normally be eating, you can spend that time researching organizations in our city that work with underserved populations, Maybe you can spend some of that time volunteering somewhere where you can serve people in need with that time that you would have spent eating, right? And another great thing that you can do is you can redirect your resources from fasting towards helping those in need, right? Maybe you can intentionally choose to fast on days where you normally would go out to eat. Like, let's, let's say you start, like Kent mentioned earlier in the series, you fast for 12 hours, in that time, you've skipped two meals, right? And for some of us, probably a few coffee breaks and snacks and other things in between, if you're anything like me. So calculate how much you would have spent on food in that 12-hour period. Give that away. Instead of going to Dunkin' on the way to work and, and going out to eat for lunch and going down the street to get a snack and a coffee on one day, you set aside that 20, 30 bucks, whatever it is, commit to use that for someone in need. Maybe you save it up over time. You give it as a lump sum to an organization that you feel like does good work in our city. Maybe every time you fast, if it is 20 to $30, you go by Kroger, you pick up a $25 gift card. Every time, you keep those with you. You see somebody in your daily life who is in need, and you are ready to give them something. The list can go on and on. There's not a finite number of things that you can do. We don't have anywhere near enough time to go through, uh, nor do I think I could even manage to come up with all the different ways that, that this could work itself out in your life. But I, I do want to offer some final input on this before we wrap up. Um, I want to caution you against... Uh, comparison when it comes to generosity. This is something that I feel deeply in myself. So if I feel it, surely someone else does. Um, I think it applies to all of life, right? Comparison is, is, is not a great way to live. But here's what I mean in regards to what we're talking about today. If you think about, like, the archetype of generosity in your mind, like the pinnacle of what it means to be generous, whoever that may be for you, and you compare your life to their life, it, it's probably going to be crushing or paralyzing. And you might think, like, ah, why bother, right? It, if I think to myself, I should be more generous and I should give more money away, and then I think I have to compare myself to, like, Bill Gates, I'll never measure up, right? Why bother giving away a few thousand dollars a year when he gave away $5 billion in 2022 alone? Don't do that. 
Right? Don't compare yourself to someone else and then use it as a reason to check out of generosity. Right? We see that in Scripture. Don't, also, don't look at the whole scope of, of poverty and injustice in the world and think, there's just too much. There's too much for me to make a difference. The task is too large. God has called all of us as his followers to different things in life. Right? Some, people, some people will work in full-time ministry. Some people uh, will, will work in finance. Some people will be teachers. Some people will work in insurance. Some people will raise families. Some people will work in tech. We are all called to different things. Right? All of our lives will look different. But we are all called to grow in a holy concern for those who have little. All of us. Will the specific outworkings of that look different? Of course it will. It will, but, but we are all called to enter into the brokenness in our world and pursue God's justice. We are. And, and I want to end all of this uh, today just, just looking at uh, just the beautiful example that we have. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing if you just think about God in heaven. Right? God looked down at the brokenness of our world. He looked at where we were. He looked at the destructive effects that sin had on his beautiful creation. And he wanted to make a way for us to be restored into right relationship with him. Could he have done that from a distance? Sure. I think so. Uh, could he have changed the course of the world from the comfort of heaven? I think he probably could have. If he wanted to, yeah, but, but what did he choose to do instead? Right? Jesus entered our world, God incarnate, God in the flesh, voluntarily entered into brokenness, voluntarily subjected himself to the realities of a fallen world when he did not have to. The incarnation is the most profound act of solidarity there has ever been. God entered into brokenness of humanity voluntarily for the purpose of unity with humanity. How beautiful is that? Right? We pursue justice and solidarity not because it makes us feel good, but because of that reason, because of our example of Jesus and the solidarity that he showed us. As followers of Jesus, we don't pursue these things because it's popular. We don't pursue these things because it's trendy. We don't do this because one of our favorite celebrities did something similar. We don't do any of it for those reasons. We do all of this because it's what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did for us. Right? And, and I think Kent said it really well in week one of this series. He said, the goal of becoming a Christian is not just to punch our ticket to heaven and wait around until we go there. It's to become more like Jesus in every single facet of our lives. To become more like Jesus. Jesus chose to humble himself. Jesus chose to share in our experiences as he pursued justice. He invites us to do the same in his world. He invites us to look at his example and follow in his footsteps as we pursue solidarity and we pursue justice.
And so as we wrap up this series, um, I would love to invite you to do a few things. Uh, first, I hope this, this was a helpful introduction uh, to fasting for you. Maybe, maybe it was a reminder for you. Regardless uh, of what it was, I would ask that you consider not letting it fall to the wayside in your life. Not letting the practice of fasting fall out of your life after this series is over. A, a couple years ago, we did a series, a formation series, all about reading scripture. My sincere hope is that people have continued to read their Bible after that. I really hope so. We did a series in formation on prayer. I hope that wasn't the last time anyone here prayed. Right? Our hope is that we continue to learn and we continue to grow in our understanding of what it means to be formed into people who look more like Jesus and that we would then continue to grow in becoming the people who look more like Jesus. That we would become people who live in a way that puts Christ on display. We would become a people that, that puts him on display but also works to see his kingdom grow, to see his justice done to see his love spread. We want to see all of those things done. So as we, uh, like we do every week, we're going we're gonna to take communion together uh, during, during the next few songs that, uh, that we're going to have. And so I, I just want to remind everybody, we just talked about the incarnation. We talked about Jesus, God in the flesh, coming and showing the, the most profound act of solidarity that we could ever imagine, more than we could ever imagine. And that is, what we, that is what we are doing when we take communion. We are remembering that act that Jesus did for us. We are reflecting on the realities of what that means, what that means for us and for our lives and the implications that that has for us. So I want to encourage you to not lose sight of, of the action that Jesus did, the, the, the lengths that he went to, to then pursue reconciliation and justice. And, and that that would inform the way that we think about our own lives and the ways that we can seek and pursue solidarity with those who are in need, with those who are victims of injustice, and that we could then follow in Jesus' footsteps as we pursue that same justice. So uh, I invite you to pray for us, or pray with us as we end.